Thank you. We're looking at chapter 3 today. <coughs> Hebrews, chapter 3, we'll look at only one verse. Verse 13. The tree. But exhort one another daily, while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Look at that verse today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, uh, we thank you once again for this time. We thank you for your precious, precious word that you've preserved for us. And we can look into faithfully trusting every word. We ask now that you would uh, teach us your ways, that you would use me as an instrument in your hands, and that your spirit be working on our hearts, that we might grow through this word that we take in. We thank you once again for your blessings upon us. We thank you for this church. And we pray today that your heart will be blessed and the name of Jesus would be exalted among us. In his name we pray. Amen. During the 50s and 60s, there was a, uh, an influx of migrants into Australia. A lot of Italians and Greeks and Maltese and all those sort of people came, uh, came wandering down, as did my family. And uh, my grandfather, who we prayed for before because he's got a sore back at the moment, um, originally went to the, uh, the, sugar, the sugar, the cane fields in Queensland, worked there for a little while. Then they came to Melbourne and uh, he got the rest of his family down in Melbourne. They lived in, uh, I think it was Flemington. And um, he worked at the sugar refinery. I think that was in Yarraville. Is that right? Okay, well, Yarraville... Um, became a bit of a melting pot and all the workers in the, uh, the factory, there was a good mix of workers over there from all over the globe. I mean, you had, once again, Greeks and Maltese, Italians, Australians. There were a few Scottish, apparently had a, a fantastic reputation as well, and Irish too. And during lunch times, when the whistle would blow and, and everyone had sort of, you know, dropped their tools and they'd, they'd go and congregate around, uh, you know, around the same area, can you imagine the different lunch boxes, the way they'd look? The Italian would open up spaghetti and, and all different types of things. The Greeks would have some feta cheese, whatever it was. The Maltese would open up some pastizzi. The Australians would probably have, I know Vegemite was around in those days, but I don't think it was ham or bread, whatever it was. Well, my grandfather had a habit. He had a small planted home of chili peppers. Um, these little red bombs, right, that you eat, and um, and they burn significantly. Yeah, it was his habit to have one of those during his lunch breaks, and and, and as you as you know, I mean, you, everyone would be eating their lunch, but watching what other people were eating because they'd be there'd be foods you'd never seen before. So one day, an Australian looked at my grandfather nibbling on this chili, and with bread, he'd be eating it and then eating, uh, eating some of the bread. And he said to my grandfather, we asked the question, he goes, what's that? He goes, what? He said, that thing you're eating over there. He goes, and my grandfather was a mischief maker. He was a troublemaker from the day he got here. He looked, it was a perfect opportunity for him. And he answered by saying, Italian fruit. <laughs> And the Australian sort of looked at him and says, Italian fruit? He goes, yeah, you want to try some? And the Australian goes, okay. 
And my grandfather goes, don't worry, tomorrow I bring you one. So, as my grandfather was prone to do, he went home, he got the hottest one he could possibly find, he brought it back to this poor unsuspecting fellow the next day. And then he said, here you go, I bought you some Italian fruit. And then he said to the guy, to enjoy it the best, you have to eat it in one go. This guy had never seen, never tasted anything hot in his life. And, as I, and for by that stage, can you imagine everyone else had already been filled in on the joke? And they were probably all there watching, waiting to see the reaction. And this poor unsuspecting fellow takes a huge bite, eats the whole thing at once. And you know when you first taste chilli, it's sort of sweet, isn't it? But then all of a sudden things all of a sudden change very quickly. And this fellow had an, an immediate reaction, which he probably never forgot for the rest of his life. Um, he started screaming, he spit, spat everything out, everyone with the whole place was laughing, and he spent, I think, the rest of the day trying to cool his mouth down. Now, what does that have to do with today's message? Well, the deceitfulness of sin. That red fruit, that little red thing looked, must have looked very appetising. It must have looked really something sweet that, he, that, he, you know, that, you would, that would actually bring pleasure to you. Little did he know that it was packed with something else. And today we're talking about, we want to focus on sin because, see, he was tricked with that, wasn't he? I hate to use my grandfather as a bad example, but he was deceitful, wasn't he? He didn't tell him the full story. It looked nice. He was eating it for sure. But you'll see and notice the verse says, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Well, you know my grandfather? His mouth was already hardened, wasn't it? His mouth was hardened. For him, he didn't even notice when he was eating it. Sure, he'd feel it, but it wasn't burning him. This other fellow wasn't hardened yet. So the first taste that he had had an immediate impact on him. So today we're looking at sin, the deceitfulness of it, the way it actually infiltrates, the way it tricks. It may look nice, but behind it is something else. Before a person becomes a Christian, they have to know something. Right? And you might say, well, they have to know, of course, they have to know that Jesus Christ died for sin. Well, before that, they have to know that they're sinners, don't they? Because in order to accept Jesus' sacrifice on the cross for you, you have to first understand that you're a sinner. But to understand that you're a sinner, you first have to understand what sin is, don't you? And how does a person understand what sin is? Where do they get that knowledge from? Well, the Bible says they get it from the law. The law reveals what sin is. It tells them what it is that's wrong and that they've done something wrong, that they've done something and they've broken a law and offended a righteous God. So through the, through the law, there is a knowledge of sin because in the law they find out that there is one God. And that we are answerable to that God. We are to worship only that one God rather than worshipping ourselves and everything else. 
They are, they are also explained that they aren't to steal, to murder, to lie, to covet, and all those other things that the, that the Bible talks about. Through that knowledge, they then understand what they are and what they've done, and that they are answerable to those things. Because of that knowledge, and because then the law makes a person guilty before God, that person then has two options. If they want to deal with that sin, they can either try and work it off, which is what most of the world does, or they can accept the price that was already paid. Now, we know, we know that you can't work it off, but most of the world doesn't. The ones who turn to Christ are the ones who realise they can't save themselves. The Bible clearly teaches they can't save themselves. So then a person is driven to Christ for salvation. Not to improve your lifestyle. Not to gain wealth and prosperity. Not, to, not all this other stuff that the, the, the modern day churches try to sell these days. But simply for salvation from hell. Because that's where a person understands that they belong. That's what they deserve. But when a person becomes a Christian, okay, so the law tells the unbeliever they've broken the law. But when a person puts their faith in Christ, the Bible says that God does something very wonderful for them. He gives them a new nature that they didn't have before. Something new comes alive within them. And the Bible says that he gives them a new heart with the law built into it. And a desire to live it. And when it comes to sin, God gives the believer an ability to recognise sin for what it is. To see it. And an instinct to avoid it. To beware of it. To understand it's evil. They know that it's something bad, that it offends God, that it breaks his heart and destroys people's lives and souls. But the question we, I'd like us to ask or look at, maybe over the next couple of weeks, this week and maybe another week, is why people sin in the first place? And why do believers sin? If God has given us a new nature, why is it that so many Christians fall into sin? And have such struggles with it. How is it that sin still has such a grip on people? Even the ones who name the name of Christ. And today, when we look at this verse, I'd like us to focus on the deceitfulness of sin. Its effect on the believer and the unbeliever. And when it comes to... This particular thing, there's a, there's a number of ways to try and deal with sin. But this particular verse gives us one way. Okay, It tells us to exhort one another daily. We're going to look at that a bit more next time. But today, we're going to start with some basics. Turn to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, verse 10. The 
first thing we need to understand is that every person in the world is a sinner. By nature, we are sinners. Verse 10 says, As it is written, There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Their throat is an open sepulchre, that's a, a tomb. With their tongues they have used deceit, the poison of asps, that's a, a serpent, is under their lisp, lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace have they not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. The first thing we need to understand, the Bible teaches, is that every person is a sinner. This is the natural tendency of every person in the world. This is our nature. The one we were born with. The one that is displayed even from when we're children. We display this type of behaviour. By nature, our flesh desires to sin and we desire to fulfil its lusts. But, verse 19 says, Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. The thing that God gives us in the law is an ability to recognise sin. It tells us, or it tells us or shows us what sin is, so we can recognise it. When someone takes notice of the law of God, they have no excuse. As it says there, every mouth is stopped by that law, because you can't argue with it. You're guilty. They have no excuse. Their mouth is shut because the law declares them guilty before the judge of the universe. So verse 20 concludes and it says, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. Okay, now you might say, what, what, does, that, what does that all mean? Well, let's say... We have ten commandments. Let's, worry, let's not worry about the other ones. Let's say there are only ten commandments. If you break one of those commandments, the only thing that you've done is to become guilty. You can't fulfil another law and make up for that one because you're meant to fulfil all the law. Do you understand? When you break a law, you're automatically declared guilty. You can't make up any other way. You can't say, but I've kept nine. But no, you're still guilty. You've got to pay for that one. When you break a speeding, uh, when you get a ticket, or when you break the speeding rules on our, on our road, and you go before the court and you've broken it by, say, 20 kilometres an hour, and they give you a ticket, or the police gives you a ticket, you can't say, oh, hang on a sec, but, I, but I, I've, I've, I've obeyed that traffic signal on the way here. I, I turned left and I put my indicator on, so I obeyed that rule. And then I obeyed, I was keeping the, the speed limit three quarters of the way up. No, you've broken the law. Same way with God's law. You can't make up for it. You can't make up for breaking the law by keeping other ones. It doesn't work. There's no 50-50 split here. There's, there's only 
a declaration of guilt. Now, that's a difference between religion and Christianity because every religion in the world, in one way or another, has a set of rules. Okay? Name them all. They're all the same. They have these rules, and what they say is, at the end of it, that if you've kept most of them, you've got a good chance of getting through. But the law doesn't work that way. The law's only good at saying you're guilty. You've broken it. You have to pay for it. But yet everyone in the world has this idea in their head that they can somehow keep most of the laws, that 51%, and then the 49 God will sort of put on the side. And God's, God's pass mark is doing a little bit more good than bad. It doesn't work. Because Eve, every legal system in the world doesn't work like that. Every legal system in the world doesn't work like that. You break a law, you've got to pay for it. You break one. Now, our legal system in Australia has hundreds and hundreds of laws. Hundreds from every angle. Whether it's in the, on the road, whether it's in business, whether it's personal, whether it's corporate, whether it's whatever, there are hundreds of laws to obey. You break one of them, it doesn't matter how many other ones you keep, you've got to pay for it. But yet people in the world, people caught up in religion, think, have this idea in their mind that whatever God they're trying to worship or they're trying to get to is somehow going to say, oh, my laws are less than the laws of the land, than the laws of, the, of this world. My standards are so much lower than the, even the laws of Australia because I'll accept multiple lawbreakers. I'll accept you breaking hundreds of laws that I've decreed because you've kept a few other ones. It's craziness. Christianity, on the other hand, says once you've broken the law, you may have broken them all. Because you're guilty, you're now guilty before God. And this is Paul's argument here, that the, the, law, the only good thing the law is for is to tell you that you're a sinner. What you do after that isn't up to you. But God has provided the solution for that. And that's that death on the cross that Jesus paid. Outside of that, that's why Jesus says he is the only way to heaven. Outside of that, doesn't matter which way you go, always leads back to hell. Because you're trying to make up for something you can never make up. As Christians, the Bible says we are no longer under the law. No longer are we under the law. Did you get that? Isn't it an amazing thing that we are no longer under the law, which means we can't be condemned by it because we have been released from it. Christ has already paid the full penalty for us, for our entire life. He's paid for that penalty. But what remains for the Christian who has been freed from the law? What does it mean for us? Can we just go around now doing whatever we like? Can we break the laws whenever we feel like it? Because we're not guilty, we can't be judged guilty anymore. There is something very different about us, but how we respond to that reveals what's really going on deep down inside. Because a lot of people are running around saying, I can, I can live whatever lifestyle I like because I've been freed from the law. It tells me exactly where their heart is at. Does it mean that a Christian can be comfortable with sin again after they've been redeemed? 
this question by, by this question right about about uh, what can you be um, redeemed by keeping the law was also posed to Paul by some of his by some of his um, critics because Paul was saying that you're freed beside keeping the law you are freed or, or made righteous before God without keeping the law simply by faith by the grace of God by faith and these people said exactly the same thing they said well hang on a sec if you're going to say that that someone can be justified just by believing then that means we can sin as much as we like doesn't it and Paul responds to that very very clearly Today in our society, in our churches, as David mentioned before, there is a, a laxness when it comes to sin. There is, there is almost this, this uh, very comfortable attitude towards it. Our churches don't preach against it. The congregations don't recognise it. Leadership is totally infected by it. And we should answer that question. Is it right for a Christian to sin the same way Paul does? And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to... There's a, a particular phrase that was actually read this morning by coincidence that Paul responds to a question posed by someone else which is obviously wrong and, God, and, and Paul uses these two words. God forbid. God forbid that a Christian should be sinning. We're going to look at a few of these God forbids now to see Paul's strength in his argument look at Romans chapter 3 verse 31 do we then make void the law through faith God forbid yea we establish the law do we make it void in other words do we make it useless do we make it of none effect do we make the law now so obsolete that we don't have to think about it anymore? And Paul says, no, God forbid. We establish the law. Establish? Well, what does it mean? Am I, am I keeping the law? By our nature, now, our new nature, we keep the law. We don't make the law obsolete by any regard. We declare by our lives that the law is good. The law is right. In our generation, the lives we live should be telling them that God's law is perfect in every way. Not the opposite. To the unsaved world who can't recognise sin, we need, to be the we need to be living lives that show them exactly what, what they lives they should be living, that reveals their sin. We are, in, in essence, living law. Do you understand? So when they read us, when they look at us, they compare our lives to them and then they say, oh, mate, my life is very different to that person over there. I'm doing this, that, that and that. They are not doing that. They're not, they're not cooperating with me. They're not participating in with me. What is it about them that's different to me? We declare by our lives the perfectness of God's law. We establish the law. We agree with it. 
we become its fulfilment in our society. Let me give you an example. Like drivers of a car who can't get a speeding ticket. All right? Imagine that we were exempt from the laws of this country. Just imagine for the moment. I use speeding tickets a lot because a lot of people struggle in that area. Right? Don, you shouldn't be pointing at the window like that. Imagine for a moment that you were ex we were exempt from getting a speeding ticket. We can't get a ticket. We can't be fined because we are above the law. You can't be held guilty for it. The next question is, how do you drive? Because you can either drive like a lunatic because you think to yourself, I can't be caught. Right? Now, I know that's going to go through people's minds because if you can't get a ticket, the first thing you, your natural nature is going to do is to do what? Is to, is to take advantage of the situation. Now, I'll, I'll submit to you that that is your old nature talking. But I'll tell you what your new nature is telling you. That you should drive well within the speed limit. And the reason you should drive within the speed limit is because you should now, because you are above the law, and people know it, right, that you, by your very action, show them the rightness of that law. By you keeping the law, you're an open, de open declaration to everyone else that keeping that speed limit is a good thing. It's right. And deep down, you know it's right because by keeping that law, you're saying to everyone around you, if I speed, I might accidentally kill someone. If, we, if everyone speeds, there's going to be more accidents, more carnage, more hurt, more deaths. And because I agree that the law is good, I'm going to keep within that speed limit, even though I'm not bound by it. That's the Christian's choice. That's the nature we have, that we do it by nature now, the new nature. We agree that the law is good. And that's exactly the same with God's law. We automatically live God's law because the new nature God put in us already has that built in. We become an example of the law to those people around us. We don't break something we say we agree with because that would make us hypocrites. Look at Romans chapter 6 verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? When we were baptised into Christ, when a person puts their faith in Christ, what happens at that very moment is the Bible says that you are baptised into Christ. The Holy Spirit comes into your life you are cleaned by the blood of Christ. You, have, you receive a new nature and you are now baptised into his death. And you've been given a new life. That's what happens to every person who puts their faith in Christ. The truth is that the old self is dead. Because God's given you something totally new. 
The old is should be done away with, and I'll say should, because God has given us something new that we should focus on and use and help to grow. Our old self, we declare dead. You know when we when we baptized, when we get baptized in the water, what we're basically doing is telling everyone else, this is what's happened to me. When I put my faith in Jesus, I went under the water. I was buried with him. And I'm telling everyone around me who's in the vicinity, who's watching what I'm doing, that I died that day. Not with the water, but the day that I, that I gave my heart to Christ. The water is a symbol of what's happened to me spiritually that everyone else can't see. I'm declaring it though to everyone else and I'm saying... That day that I put my faith in Christ, I died with him and he rose me up again, a new person. How can a person then sin who is dead? I'll ask you a question. What can a dead person do? How many things can a dead person do? Your old self is dead. Your old person is dead. You should be dead completely. The question, though, is, is it what happened to you? That's the real question that you have to answer in your life. Is that what happened? Because some people are walking around believing that they're Christians, but nothing ever happened. No change ever occurred in their lives. No fruit has ever come of it. There is no change of attitude towards sin. That's when a person needs to examine their heart very carefully to determine, did they ever make a real profession? Because there are plenty of people who make professions. You know, these days there, there are literally thousands and thousands of people who walk down the aisle in a church, come to the front in, a big, in big groups, they get saved, they go away, and 90% of them or 95% of them disappear. Never to be seen again. Never lived a life never read their Bibles, never went to church, never, never got seen again, they went back and did the very same thing they were doing the day before. Now, is there any salvation in that? There isn't. Just because you utter some words, the Bible says that if you speak it, you have to also believe it in your heart. Look at verse 11, chapter 6. Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in the lusts thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for ye are not under the law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? God forbid. Now let me explain something to you. It's, it's much like, and I'll, 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 I think this, this illustration works, it's much like a person who migrates to, immigrates to a new country. Right? They've come from their old country. And their old country had all types of rules and regulations and laws and lifestyles and things. Now, when they immigrate to a new country, who do they answer to for the laws? The old country or the new country? The new. 
Now, if I try to live by the laws of the old country, I might find myself in trouble in the new country because the new country doesn't recognise the, the laws of my old country. I have to then sign and say, because I live here, because I am now a citizen of this country, I am under the laws of this country. Actually, you're under the laws in this country whether you're a citizen or not. But once you've taken citizenship of, of that country, you've openly declared to everyone else, I am now under the laws of this country. I will do what I can to be a good citizen of this country. The old laws, what do you do with them in, from the old country? What good are they to you anymore? Zero. And that's when a person goes from being in the world, a citizen of the world, with the old nature, where you naturally obeyed the laws of the world. And then all of a sudden, God brings you and makes you a citizen of heaven and gives you a total new citizenship. What use to you was the old laws and living like that? Useless. All those old ways of living aren't useful anymore. They're dead, gone, buried. You've got a new life, a new citizenship. So the Bible says that you, we should start behaving like citizens of heaven rather than the old citizens. That's why Paul continually reminds us, reckon yourself dead. Reckon myself dead? Yeah, my old self is dead. The new nature I have now is the real me, the one that's going to live on into eternity. Because the old one, even though it's still kicking around a little bit, is gone. For all intents and purposes, it's not going to be around too much longer. I might as well kill it off now as fast as I can and focus on the new life. Because the new life is where my treasure should be. The new life is who I really am, who I'll be in eternity, not just now. I might as well start investing in that rather than trying to live in the, by the old ways. Look at Romans chapter 7, verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. Nay, I had not known sin, but by the law. For I had not known lust, except the law had said, Thou shalt not covet. And this brings us back to the original problem. The law can't save you. The law can tell you that you suffer from lust, but the law can't do anything about it. The law can only condemn you. And the added problem to that is because by nature we are law breakers, we are rebellious, we like to go over the boundaries, what happens when we have a law that says to us, you shouldn't be crossing this line over here, our nature says, I want to see what's going to happen if I do. And by nature we try to break the law even more. So the law escalates our sinful nature, it actually makes us even more sinful than we were before because our rebelliousness comes out. Paul's conclusion in the whole matter is that he is a wretched person. He sees the old nature and what it's like and he says, a wretched man that I am, there is nothing good in me. Nothing good. Every desire that he might have to do good, he can't do it. But there's a new nature that God's given us that can do good. That's got a built-in 
mechanism to avoid sin and to fulfill the good stuff that God wants us to do. We have a new nature, a new citizenship, and we have an indwelling of the Holy Spirit that's there to keep on reminding us and empower us. The only problem that we've got is that we're schizophrenic beings. We have an old nature still attached. It's a bit like getting a new car. A bit like getting a brand new car, right? So you, drive, you can drive in your brand new car, but you're towing an old car. The old car is still attached. And sometimes we feel as if we're, we're playing this game between the old and the new. Because the flesh sometimes feels very strong. It's louder. It's more enticing. It, our eyes, our ears, our senses are louder than the voice of the Spirit of God within us. And we struggle with those, with those two things. This is a challenge for every Christian who has put their faith in Jesus. In that while God has made us new creatures and has given us a new nature, the old nature can't be improved. You know your old flesh? can't be fixed. It can't be redeemed. It can't be improved. It's still there. It's destined. It's been judged. And God will judge it one day when we receive new bodies. The old will be destroyed completely. But for the moment, it can't be redeemed. The only thing you can do with it is to keep on... You know that game at the, uh, at the, uh, the circus? You know those, those little animals that come up on the thing and you've got, they give you a big mallet like that and you've got to hit it down? That's what you've got to do with it. That's the only thing you can do with the flesh is to crucify it daily. It's, every time it rears its, it start to reel its, its ugly head up, you have to whack it on the head and hit it back down again. That's the only, way you can, that's the only thing you can do with it. So the scripture says, Exhort, Hebrews 3.13, exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Um, I'm not going to get to finish the message this morning. I'm going to close it up before I actually start looking at the deceitfulness of sin. But I'll just explain to you what we're going to do. See this, this verse? I'm going to look at it in, re in reverse. I'm going to look at, see how it says, exalt one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. I'm going to look at that thing in reverse. All right? In a nutshell, what I'm going to do over the next probably two weeks now is look at sin and how it is deceitful, how it actually infiltrates. How does it try to get into our lives? What avenues does it use? What tricks does it try to use to actually trap us and then once it's trapped us how does it then harden us because you know something remember how my grandfather was eating that fruit and he was hardened to it you know when you first taste a chili you burn right when you have it the second time it still burns but then if you keep on eating it all the time you become desensitized to it so it becomes a natural thing for you to do sin is the same you can do it at the beginning, right? And it becomes like, oh, what have I done? You, have, you, you start to, to think, what, have I done something wrong? 
If you do it the second time, it becomes easier. The third time becomes easier. The fourth time, before you know it, you've become hardened. Because it's deceitful. It tricks you into trapping you. And once it's got you trapped and you become hardened, you don't even notice you're doing it. You forget that you're doing it. And then it becomes something that's not even that important to you anymore. So we're going to look at it from that perspective. And then once we've looked at how sin is deceitful, how it hardens you, then we're going to look at what does this mean, exhortation? What does it mean to exhort one another daily? Does anyone know what that means practically? Because day, I'm not with you daily. Are we together daily? Not necessarily. We may talk to each other often. But what does it mean to properly exhort one another so that we are able to counteract this business? That we're able to fight against sin? And this is, this is a very strong argument for church and why people should be in church. Because if you're not in a church, right, can you counteract it by yourself? Is it easy to fight an enemy by yourself or is it easy to fight an enemy together? Well, Paul will tell us in this passage over here, exhort one another daily, which means you're what? Together, fighting against sin that easily besets us. So it's a strong argument for being in church and for working together to grow in the Lord. So my encouragement to you today is let's spend the next week or two looking at this verse let's examine our hearts we didn't have communion today but let's examine ourselves with respect to sin how comfortable are we, are we with it have we become accustomed to those smaller sins are we happy to tell a white lie here and there are we happy to be a bit deceitful here and there are we happy sorry for, for younger people to dishonour your parents do we give God? Do we put him in the right place? Do we put him before other things? Or are there other things that are competing with God at the moment? Are we living a life of idolatry without realising it? Do we worship other things in this world? Other things in the world, do they have a trap on us that we don't realise? Have we neglected the things that God has told us to do? Told us to do in terms of, do we pray? Are we reading God's word? Are we doing things that we know deep down are right? Or are we neglecting those things? How much sin have we gotten comfortable with? And the next question I'd like us to ask is, how much exhorting, I'd like us to think about this, how much exhorting are you doing of your brethren? How much do you encourage the people around you to keep up the good fight? Do you do it? Or are you so engrossed in your own life? Are we so wrapped up in ourselves that we don't think to, that there's someone next to me who's struggling with sin and they need a bit of encouragement? Is there something that you have that the person next to you needs to hear? Are we too timid? I'd like us to look at these things the next few weeks. And as a church, because I think this is really... Uh, a verse about the church and how we work together to fight because the fight is on, my brothers and sisters. The fight is on. 
The question is whether you're sitting back, sleeping, while there are few at the front lines trying to, trying to fight the, the battle together. Okay? God bless you. Thank you.